Between the Lines with Andrea Gilligan. This is News Talk. You're welcome along to News Talks Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan, where we'll be taking a closer look at some of the main stories and issues of interest. My thanks to everyone who got in contact about our last programme discussing youth homelessness in Ireland today. As the number of children in emergency accommodation reached its highest level last week, we've been asking what can be done. You can still listen back, though, to our podcast on the Go Loud app or on our website at newstalk.com and on iTunes. And as always, you can get in contact with us today by emailing between the lines at newstalk.com or on Twitter at myself at Andrea Gilligan. Well, coming up today, as part of our Commuter Hell Week here on News Talk, we'll be discussing the commuter pressures on motorists right across the country. And we'll also be focusing on the infrastructure provision, everything from commuting, numbers and infrastructure, and how can we possibly try and alleviate some of that pressure and congestion. To discuss, we're joined in studio today by our panellists, Pora Carroll, who's an assistant professor in the School of Engineering at University College Dublin, Pora Kukeja, who's also a member of the Joint Committee on Transport, Tourism and Sport, but also the founder of Air Aran Express and Aer Lingus Regional, and also motoring journalist with the Sunday Independent, Geraldine Herbert. My thanks to you all for joining us here today. Well, my own commute is at a 20 past four every morning here into work and it takes me in a taxi about seven minutes so really not a lot of this actually affects me it's one of the few disadvantages to or advantages to going to work before half four in the morning but um Geraldine it's been a long time since I had to commute in the car you know with the normal commuter time in the M50 just how bad is it out there at the moment? Well, I'm not somebody who uses the M50 on a regular basis, but anyone who does at peak time, and remember, peak time is getting longer and longer all the time, Andrea, will tell you it's a car park. It is, you know, it, it has surpassed it, its usefulness at this stage. And I suppose we've lost what it was supposed to do. The key objective originally of the M50 was, was it was supposed to bypass the city. It was supposed to be a link from the north city to the south city. Now, essentially what it is, it's almost dealing with regional traffic or local traffic rather than national traffic. So you have people jumping on it, you know, one junction, jumping off at two junctions later. It's not being used for the purpose it is. Unfortunately we've had so much development around the M50. We've had Lucan, Blanchardstown, Clondalkin expand exponentially so they've become almost you know the M50 has become almost a destination in itself. So anyone using that on a daily basis I would say is tearing their hair out at this mm. stage. So Just to give listeners a little bit of context Geraldine just so people know we're all, we're, we're, where we are all coming from today. Just what's your own commute like? Are you a- Okay thankfully I work from home but if I have to get into the city centre now I did during the week actually had to come into news talk for say around 25 past 10. That causes huge problems for me. I do a school run as well. Now my kids start school at 5 past 9. They were dumped off at 10 to 9. It was like sad children. You just have to stand there. It still took me till about quarter past 10 to park in the Stevens Green Centre. Now that hour is not, right. that, I wouldn't call that peak time. Most people would mm. call peak time being at your office yeah. at nine or half nine. So even when you're trying to do it slightly off peak, it takes me an hour and a half. And I dropped my kids to Prosperous, which is not that far from the city centre. Okay. Pora Carol, tell us a little bit about your own commute first of all. What's your... So so I cycle to work. So my commute is about eight kilometres and uh, it takes me about half an hour to get to work. So thankfully, the way I go, the cycling infrastructure is relatively good, but... Even during peak times, you know, it's very congested for cyclists and quite dangerous, uh, especially when, you know, people want to overtake other cyclists. In, in my case, uh, it, it's the most efficient way and time time efficient way to get to work. If I was to take a bus, it'd probably take over an hour because yeah. it'd be two buses. There's no direct bus route to, to UCD from where I come from. And I don't I don't uh, drive to work because it just make, doesn't make any sense either. Okay. So it's, it's mostly cycling for me. And and, and yourself as well, uh, Pork Kakeja, what's your own commute like? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, <laughs> after listening to Porik there, Porik, I think I'd be better off cycling to work. Uh, I live in Connemara. Yeah. Come up here to Dublin. I'm here 
Tuesdays, Wednesdays and Thursdays usually. Um, it takes anything between three and a half and about five hours for me to get from Connemara to Dublin and the same thing back again. That's unbelievable. I mean, you'd nearly be in New York. You would. It's crazy. Absolutely crazy. Um, I use a train on occasion, but I usually use the car because I'm on the phone a lot. I use Mm. it as a kind of a... I'm, I'm working on it's a bit of an office you're right and on the train you cannot really have a proper confidential conversation on the train because it's pretty public so um, I usually drive and it also gives me the flexibility but it's 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 tough it's annoying mm. so I was thinking of cycling <laughs> you might have to co- consider it after today I was interested Geraldine we had this very discussion actually this time last year we looked mm-hmm. at commuter hell um, 2018 here in the station and you were part of the panel mm-hmm. and the, at the time the um, the panellists no more than you did today described the M50 as a car park and I think it's amazing to think that even a year on with the introduction of even you know more um, uh, availability of buses you know increasing in public increasing public services and also with more people actually taking to the roads and the bike and cycling and at the same time, like it, it doesn't seem to have done anything. And we might just start with Dublin today because that's where we are, but we, we will look at intercity services. Yeah, I think there's a few things there. I think, first of all, there hasn't been a huge increase in any of those things. I mean, there is a consistent amount of people who use the bus. There are increases in cycling, not substantially, though. I mean, it's gone, I think, about to, it's about 6% at this stage. I know they, they tend to take these figures for cycling in November, which is not a very good month for cycling because you get more cyclists during the mm-hmm. summer and, you know, better weather or whatever. But I, I'd still say it's, it's not any greater than that. The issue with the M50, and it's still the same issue that was here this time last year, is there is no increased capacity. There's no way they can increase the capacity. So all they can actually do is manage the traffic. Now, the problem with that is Sean O'Neill was here, and I'm sure if he was sitting here today, he would still tell you the same thing. Smart motorways, variable speed limits, all of these things are coming, but they're coming next year. That should make a difference because it's about, as I said, it's about managing traffic at this stage. It's not about increasing capacity. But until we see something constructive like that, we're not going to see any change to the M50 traffic. And I think that's the big issue at yeah. the moment. Just r- explain to listeners Geraldine what that will mean. I mean like if you're somebody who uses the M50 on a daily basis, what what will this variable speed limit mean to you if you're trying to get from you know one junction to the next? The idea of variable speed limits is just literally to slow the traffic down at key times and if everybody is going a consistent speed then it stops this stopping and starting that actually makes you feel like you're getting somewhere you're not actually getting anywhere with this it actually slows traffic down it can also respond to uh, to other conditions so it smooths out the traffic and it smooths out the routes more than anything and that's the key thing and it has been shown to actually significantly impact on um the travel time. So they really do need to do that. The idea of smart motorways is a variable speed limits along with the use of a hard shoulder if necessary so they can switch and turn that into a lane if they have to. And that itself obviously kind of builds capacity for just, you know, a short term. So if there's a, you know, a delay on junction, whatever, they can then Im- implement um, a smart motorway system mm. maybe three junctions earlier so they can actually get people off it or get people moving so the idea is just to, as I said it's not to increase capacity it's just to manage the issue at the moment okay. and that's what they're looking at they can't do much else Poor Carol can I ask you just from an, an engineering perspective I mean when you look at the design and how the road network is laid out and in particular the M50 because a lot of our listeners use the M50 um, if not on a daily basis certainly throughout the course of their week what do you think could be done? So as as Julian quite Riley mentioned, uh, there is limited opportunities to provide additional capacity, road capacity. So I, I personally think that, you know, we need to look at ways to divert this demand elsewhere. Um, it's not an easy challenge. It's not, it's, it's not an easy thing to do, mm. but we need to invest more in high mass or mass transit solutions, active travel solutions, ways of um, getting people to uh, use multi-modes uh, to, to go to work. So if they, you know, if they have an option to drive to a certain point and then take public transport, Park and ride solutions, um, 
as part of the national development plan there are num- going to be a number of more um, more uh, 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 parking ride mm. options yeah. available um, I think nine in the Great Dublin area and they're, those are going to link up with the bus connects um, particularly and also rail services um, so that would divert this demand um, away from the M50 motorway um, to use other 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 routes, particularly um, high frequency um, and hopefully more reliable routes okay. for public transport. And do you think with something even just as kind of as, as simple as that, encouraging people to you know use the M50 for X part of the journey and, and take you know a bike or cycle or a bus for Y part of it, you think that that would actually have a difference? It's one of the solutions, but we need to look at cards and sticks. So incentives, but also measures such as you know dynamic tolling so that's one of the things that are being talked about yeah. um, on the M50 so just explain what that is first. so multi-point tolling so if we're at peak times there might be higher uh, charges to to access the M50 motorway um, other times off peak times lower charges so these are very very based on the time of day um, and the demand uh, at that particular time mm. um, obviously that would you know, people would react in a way that you know they don't want to um, pay obviously higher charges, but mm-hmm. um, it would incentivize people to use other sustainable modes. Yeah, so it's a little bit similar to how they do it in the Port Tunnel, for instance. Yeah, um, it well, if you think about it in terms of congestion charging, it's it's a demand management measure, um, so it manages demand in a way that's more sustainable, and um, you know, acts as a disincentive to use that particular route as it's at high capacity yeah. at the moment. Okay. It's just, uh, Cage is just obviously in your kind of capacity um, with the, the committee and transport. Like Some of the points raised there by, by Carrot or by Pork, I should say, are, they're, they're interesting. The idea of the carrot and stick, the you know demand-led approach, trying to incentivise people. Is that something that could be looked at? Definitely, that's something that could be looked at. And I was certainly taken by what you said there, Geraldine, in relation to, let's call it dynamic trafficking. I didn't make mm-hmm. a note of it, but I thought it was very interesting, the hard shoulder and actually have an extra space that you can utilise it when you need it. Uh, like, for example, in a lot of countries, a lot of cities, San Francisco, for example, the Golden Gate Bridge, mm-hmm. you get most of the traffic going into the city at a particular time in the morning and most traffic going out in the evening time. So what they've done is actually they've increased the lanes going when the traffic is, is, is heaviest yeah. and reduce them going the opposite direction. So I think that type of dynamic traffic modelling could be used. Um, I think the Department of Transport, in my view, are doing the best they can do. They've got, uh, there's reasonably substantial funding there overall for it. But I think we've got to think differently. We've got to act differently. We're, we're way behind the curve in relation. We're trying to do and catch up with where we're at, but I think we're probably about 10, 15 years uh, behind behind the model, behind the scale on it. Um I there's a couple of things. Public transport is absolutely essential. And then you ask, yeah. why aren't people using public transport more? You know, and you get to, get to the nub of why they're not using. One, I think, is frequency. In many cities, they've actually reduced charges, even free public transport that they have at certain mm. times of the day to get people to actually use the public transport. Because when you look at transport economics, it actually makes a lot more sense overall in a holistic sense if you don't have charges get people more on public transport also why are people you asked the question there about mm. uh, 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 cycling and poor acute cycle to and from work and you say quite frequently it can be pretty dangerous it's dangerous for the cyclists but it's also dangerous for motorists because they're trying to overtake their no rush to and you're talking about stress on either side and that's what causes yeah. accidents because the roads are not suitable for both uh, uh, the number of cyclists we have and the number of cars we have it's too narrow Yeah absolutely and that, that's the point Porik I wanted to bring you in Porik Carl as well just the, that idea that we're, we've got so, so many competing interests fighting for such a small space out there Yeah yeah. we need to look at you know the hierarchy so which should be prioritised over which is the top priority you know in, in transfer planning 
at the moment it's it's pedestrians first, cyclists, um, public transport, and then motorists at the bottom. Um, historically, that was flipped. Uh, so mm. uh, motorists were seen as the highest priority. Things are changing now, so we need to you know put our money where our mouth is in terms of um, prioritize cycling and pedestrians over other other motorists and car users. Um, so, I mean, ways of doing that is reallocating space to these um, active mode users, so active being cycling and walking, and public transport as well. So the only way to really do that is to really um, look at reassigning this road space to more cycling infrastructure. Um, and ways of doing that is really to reduce space, unfortunately, for uh, private car users, maybe at certain times of the day, one-way routes perhaps as well. Okay. What's your view, Gerling, on that idea of the kind of reallocation of... Uh of some of the, the the infrastructure or some of the actual road network as, as Park talked about there? Um, I think we have to prioritise public transport more than anything. I mean, I definitely I agree with, you know, we have to invest in cycling infrastructure and it's not that expensive to invest in cycling infrastructure at all. But I came across a great quote the other day, a bus with 80 passengers has a right to 80 times more road space than a car. When you think <laughs> about it like that, though, that is quite true. Yeah. Anything that's going to move 80 people. I mean, what we have in, in Dublin is a, a terrible situation of single occupancy car use where we have 80 people coming in in 80 separate cars. I mean, that is ridiculous. We could look at carpooling. There's loads of things we could look at. But just one or two points that have come up there. In terms of public transport, it struck me that when I was coming into town during the week, could I get the train? And my husband goes from, he cycles to the train, which is about five kilometres. He jumps on the train and then gets a Lewis in. He does it door to door and he works in the city centre in less than an hour. Right. I couldn't possibly do that in a car. And more interestingly, he does it getting home in the same distance. Now, one of the biggest issues with using the train from my point of view is I can't park at the train station. If I want to park at the train station, I have to be there at half six in the morning to get one of those coveted car spaces. We need more car spaces at um, trains and to encourage people to use them. The other thing is there's no bicycle spaces at train stations. Mm. So if you're cycling to the train station, you can't leave your bike anywhere. We should also look at the idea of taking your bike on the train. There's no facilities to do that. So these are simple things we could do. And if we look at the Dutch model, I mean, people always say, I can't replace a 50 kilometre commute with a bike. Well, you could with a with a, a train and a bike. Or e-bikes, e-scooters. These are much more long distance mm. range. We need to look at things like that, like the simple enough things we could do that don't require building huge, big new M50s. I want to just come before we move back to Pork again, just uh, Geraldine, to pick up on a point that um, Pork Carl had just mentioned a little bit earlier and just that idea of incentivising road road users to use, for instance, Dublin in particular, the likes of the M50, maybe at different times. Um, I can certainly testify that if anyone wants to use it at 20 plus 4 in the morning, it's very, very (laughs) quiet out there. But like not every office is open at that time of the day. So how, how do you think that incentive, just from a public policy perspective, would actually go down. Well, I mean, why do people have to be at their desk at nine o'clock in the morning? I have no idea why, especially for uh, the, the public sector. We could look at flexible working hours. We could look at working from home. Employers have this idea if they allow people to work from home, that'll be it. They'll be in their pyjamas <laughs> watching breakfast TV. They won't. They'll actually be far more productive. Studies have shown you will get more out of people. And I, I doubt you're getting much out of people who like, are tearing their hair out for two hours in the M50. By the time they come in stressed at, you know, half nine mm. and they've been on the road since half six or whatever, you're not getting productivity. So employers could definitely look at working from home. The other thing, and I, I've been banging this drum for God knows how many years, and I've said it already, is carpooling. You know, if you have five car spaces in work, give them to the person who's coming in and taking four employees into work. HR departments could map people's journeys quite easily and go, right, you three or you four in a car. Now, I admit everybody doesn't want to share with Mary and yeah. accounts or whatever, but look, you know, <laughs> it, there's an incentive there, and there are simple things like that we could do to take people off the roads. Okay, just put pork, uh, pork Acadia, what's your idea of this carpooling? Could you find four other people in Connemara? to travel up with you three days a week? 
very difficult. <laughs> We'd also be going at different times. Yeah, but see, this is the I thing. Might, I might it? need to go from Spittle to Mike Cullen to Carnet to pick up the other three people or they're coming towards me. Um, to me, I think it sounds good in theory, but I think it's, in practice it doesn't doesn't appear to be working. And everybody's got their own particular reason for it. Um, in relation to um, uh, people coming to work in offices, I was just talking to a guy the last day. His son actually works, I think, at Spotify. They have got over 500 employees in Ireland and they don't have one office. They're all working from home. Right. You know. So, we, 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 Geraldine is right. We need to go a lot, lot more down there. Uh, businesses, business, if you don't have to be there, can you work remotely or part, part time remotely? It's a culture thing. It's a mindset thing we need to really get mm-hmm. into. They're pretty good at it in other countries. We're not as good at it in Ireland as maybe we yeah. could or should be. I, I do wonder, though, I mean, like, I wonder. Is there a responsibility on employers to provide the working from home options just because our public transport system can't or our transport infrastructure system doesn't seem to be able to cope with the amount of people going to work? Uh, I think it's, I think it's, uh, Andrea, I think it's more than that from an employer's perspective. Yeah, that's part of it. And it's important when employees come to work that they're not seriously stressed uh, running around trying to bring the kids into school for nine o'clock. My good God, I got to be at work at half nine. Mm. There's something on the M50 that's slowing me down, and you're coming in and you're not you're not fresh. So that's a factor that employers employers look at. But also from an employer point of view, there's a, there's a cost benefit analysis. In actual fact, there's less office space that's required. Let's say, for example, an office space costs I think in the region of something like eighteen thousand euros a year. Just say in in Greater Dublin, just have a, a desk and an office space, nothing else. A lot of that is money saved, quite frankly, and what they're doing to some degree, that's saving significant cost on the yeah. employer. So it depends on the job. Like, for example, here in Newstalk, could you do this from home or someplace else? Can you do it remotely? <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> Build a studio I'm, at the house to be probably m- no, much more of a cost. But does it have to be? Point, does it have to be? You know, so there's... We've I got do to think look at certain it. industries, though, are probably going to find it difficult to... Absolutely. You know, and, and I, but I take your point in relation like, to... In my situation, say, Air Aaron, you cannot have a pilot flying an aeroplane from home. Yeah, Not no, yet anyway, you know. <laughs> the day might come. But look, I know, I, and I take your point, and definitely there's a lot of office-based work that, that can, you know, actually be, be, uh, be done from home. Just on the point, just on the M50 at the moment, I mean, um, before we move on to kind of intercity services and, and elsewhere <coughs> around the country, but what do you think perhaps um, poor Carol could be the most immediate measure that could be rolled out to try and alleviate the pressure? Like if, if governments to decide today we want to do something next month that's going to alleviate pressure because if there's a breakdown in the M50, okay, the figures will show you it might take 15 minutes to clear it. But the backlog then to get the congestion, the traffic, the throughput back through the system could take up to the guts of nearly two hours. Yeah, well, uh, personally, I think... Pricing is probably the most, uh, in terms of the economic way of doing it, would be pricing it. So you need to price it in terms of how valuable that asset is. So in terms of the M50 motorway, it's a very valuable asset for people to get to work, you know, on a daily basis. So um, distance centers are very effective in in changing travel behavior. Um, Research has shown that incentives alone are are not effective enough to get people out of their cars. Incentives um, more generally actually incentivize people to switch between sustainable modes or from cycling to public transport, public transport to cycling, whatever. So um, it needs to be a, a combination of both. Um, it needs to be a carrot hand stick measure. Um, so if we were to increase um, public transport provision and make that cheaper, make it more reliable, um, make, make it a, you know, make higher frequency services 
um, and bring that along with uh, disincentives, then that's the most effective way of doing it. But and by disincentive, I presume you mean basically charge more people to be on yeah. the M50. Is that what you're saying? It's not an easy decision to make, but um, it's it's the only real solution, I think. Okay, what do you think, Geraldine Herbert, to that? I think, unfortunately, that is the case because it's a supply and demand issue, really, because if you improve uh, public transport and you move more people onto the bus, then all of a sudden roads become less congested and then people in cars go, do you know something? It's a good time now to go back to my car because it's actually easier to get into the town or easier to get into the city so you have to be really really careful about managing that and unfortunately the best way to do that is to have um, to make it harder I suppose for people to return to their cars and keep them on the bus but you have to keep that incentive Mm. to stay on public transport so whether you do that through congestion charges for the city centre which I personally would be against are you just remove car spaces are you just bring in car free zones like they have in other cities but you have to look at while you're improving public transport you have to make a disincentive to be in your car and to get people out of their car yeah. you cannot have both because all you will have is you'll fill the roads again with cars Okay what's your view Park on that um, I actually I, I'd be taking a lot directly a lot by what you say Park, because you're you're an expert your area is transport behaviour and uh, I actually think it's got to people will do things what suits them best. And a key factor for people, I think, and there's a number of them. One is time. Time is really, really, really important because time takes away stress, allows them to do a lot more things. And we're actually very, very time poor in Ireland and worldwide. Mm. So I think we can have a better, more effective system that gets them from A to B much faster. In actual fact, people pay an extra few bob for that if that needs to be. Plus then, if you've got the stick on the other side, if you used another method that congests, that causes congestion, that there is a penalty involved in that. But if you're going to do that, if that's going to be your base, you've got to have your your starting point. And you've said, time is the key factor. In Iran, I remember the day I was asked the management team, what what are we selling, guys? What are we selling? What's the customer want? The one word customers want is time. That's the only reason, primary reason they fly with us was because of time. They want to get from A to B faster, obviously safer. That's fundamental. But it's about time. Mm. So it is. So we can actually go and create that efficiency in time. In my view, I think we're more or less together on this. Public tra- a good, effective public yeah. transport system is the key to it. If you have that then that actually makes things a lot, lot easier. Okay, well, we're going to just stay with that particular point about the idea of increasing and enhancing the public transport infrastructure services in just a few moments. Uh, we do have to take a short break. You're listening to News Talks Between the Lines programme. We'll be back with more on this issue in just a moment. Between the Lines on News Talk. Well, you're welcome back to News Talks Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan. Today, we are discussing, as part of our Commuter Hell Week series here on News Talk, we're focusing on commuter pressure and the infrastructure provision right across the country. Our panel still with us today, Porik Okeja, the founder of Air Aran Express and Aer Lingus Regional and also member of the Committee on Transport. Porik Carroll, who's an assistant professor in the School of Civil Engineering at University College Dublin and motoring journalist with the Sunday Independent, Geraldine Herbert. My thanks to you for staying with us today. I suppose in the first part of the programme we really focused on Dublin and in particular the the M50 um, the M50 road network but one of the things we've identified today is that we probably could get more people out of their cars and into public transport if we were to possibly enhance some of the public transport system um, I used to use the 16 bus Geraldine to get from Harold's Cross to Dublin when I used to have to come in to work for 9 o'clock in the morning and the one thing that used to bother me was that at the peak time at 8 o'clock when most people want to get, wanted to get on the bus there were never enough 16 bus coming in at that time and it just strikes me why can't they just provide more buses between the hours of half seven and half eight like why not have less services throughout the day but get more people into work at that time 
Um, well, two things on that. First of all, we need to go back again to that whole idea that we all have to be in work at nine o'clock in the morning. I mean, schools surely could stagger their opening times as well. I mean, you can see it during midterm break and during the summer, the impact that schools have or provide more school buses. So there's that issue as well. The other thing is, I think Bus Connects, I mean, it's the first kind of real reimagining of Dublin transport in terms of buses. And I think that has it, it has a, it holds the key to a lot of the issues like that. But fundamentally, I think the problem is we look at congestion as a, as, a, as a symptom of, you know, too many cars and insufficient roads. It's actually a symptom of bad land use more than anything else. And we have everything backwards, particularly in Dublin, because what we have done is we have a very low density urban sprawl. We have pushed people out to County Meads and County Kildare. Mm. They are now, as Porrick was saying about space being the art, time being the essence of everything. They're wasting time. They cannot buy how they cannot buy houses in the city centre. They can't buy houses where they work. So they're ending up, you know, commuting for um, for anything up to you know an hour to two hours. And no matter how fast we provide the public transport in, we can't fundamentally deal with the issue that people are living far, far mm. away from where they're working. And that is one of the fundamental problems that Bus Connect and nothing else is going to solve. I saw a really interesting um, statistic the other day when I was just preparing for this about you know the peak travel period. It now spans the guts of about six hours of the yeah. day like that wow. idea that it used to be one hour an hour either side six yeah. hours is our, our peak travel time um, can I ask you uh, poor Carol just from you know again just from, you, you're in the, the planning um, part of all of this or certainly from the engineering perspective but how do you think Bus Connects is going to improve the situation or is it? So if we were to increase capacity at the moment so if we were to add more uh, bus services based on the current infrastructure at the moment it wouldn't really lead to the benefits that people really think um, yes, people will be on the bus, but it doesn't mean they'll get to work on, on time. It's going to lead to higher congestion in bus lanes and where there's no bus lanes, even greater congestion where there's mixing of other traffic. So Bus Connects is trying to you know, facilitate this higher frequency and um, reliability with uh, dedicated um, bus lanes, priority given to um, uh, buses. And the only, way to, the only way to do this is to reallocate bus, uh, sorry, road space to um, to buses so mm. to make continuous bus lanes um, a priority and um, the only way to do that is either widening the roads which is obviously not a very popular decision um, uh, or uh, you know um, making one way routes um, more of a more mm-hmm. uh, you know no, I, I know what you're saying and it's interesting because the level of opposition that we hear from various different community groups for a whole host of different reasons um, and people all have their, their views and, and their reasons as to why they don't want you know certain routes to be changed roads to be widened and, and all of this kind of thing but are we paying too much heed to that uh, pork okay Jay, if, if we're to try and actually really address our public infrastructure problems or obviously people are entitled and they should have their say but yeah um I think it's 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 one of the biggest. I'm kind of a little bit new to the Shannon. Um, I've I've never been involved in politics, and and uh, they're known on the Transport Tourism and Sports mm. Committee. And one of the areas we're grappling with, and uh, uh, we've been challenged on, is relation to Bus Connect in Dublin. And what you have there is you've got um, transport economists and transport strategists say, look, this is the way mm. forward. This is what we need to do. This is the evidence based way of doing it. This is what happens in Toronto and so on and so forth. We want to introduce into this into Dublin. And you've got then local communities because it disadvantages some local communities who really, and I can understand, why wouldn't they? All of us would do it uh, because it does not, it disadvantages them and it does not give them what they believe a fair crack at the whip. And that can throw the whole lot off kilter. And then those local communities lobby TDs 
not really senators, lobby TDs, because they're more important, lobbies uh, <laughs> uh, uh, TDs in order to try and change the rules, the guidelines. So you've got, like, for example, uh, uh, Road Transport Ireland and you've got the Department of Transport who are caught in a conflict situation between what local communities are looking and needing and what they believe is the greater macroeconomic benefit. And it's interesting, I spoke to somebody just anecdotally the other day and we were having a conversation like this about traffic and somebody just made the point to me, Geraldine, why don't we put the whole thing underground? That's what they do in other countries. Like, should should we... Should we be looking? I know there's obviously so much discussion about Metro North and, and you'll have various different views from a whole host of commentators about that. But like, do we have to start looking at maybe starting to put some of the services underground? To be honest, I think that would be a very expensive option and I don't know if we actually need that. I mean, we have a very, as I said, a low density sprawl in Dublin. We have a very complex mess more than anything. And I'm not sure even the Metro North is money well spent. I mean, I think we'd be better off investing in buses. That is, mm. it seems to me, a far more effective solution. I think it would be money spent with very little return, to be honest. But I think to go back to that idea about consensus, um, I think Bus Connects got, what was it, 50,000 submissions or it's something? Huge, with, yeah, it was huge. Yeah. Uh, it's the biggest on record. And I think that's great. I think because it, it shows people have something to say. There's an ownership there as well. If mm-hmm. you you know if you submit something and you, you feel your feedback is is being um is being listened to, but I, I think we need to move away from pleasing everyone and, and you know consensus is not going to be achieved at all times and we need to have clear leadership about public transport and about where we're going with all of this and I think politicians need to be bold and think beyond the next election and make you know yeah, clear that- decisions and show that we're going somewhere. I think the other thing we need to do and we need to accept as a as a society really that infrastructure we don't have to look to, to new infrastructure as the solution we need to look at a change in mindset. We need to culturally, I think, move away from this dependence on cars. And I know it's hard for a lot of people. I'm a motoring journalist. I love driving. You know, but <laughs> you I mean, I'm sure, job yet, <laughs> I'm sure there's, a, you know, you won't have chefs sit here, you know, advocate obesity. And it's the same sort of thing. I think we really need to see there's a time and a place for a car. And I don't believe city centres are, you know, are for cars. And I think we really need, I mean, what they have done in other cities is they've, they've introduced cycling lanes and they've introduced bus lanes and they've slowly but surely moved cars away and they've taken lanes away away from cars. Cars have then adapted. They've taken another lane away. Cars adapt again. And that is the way to yeah. do it. We need to change that mindset. I'm not having to go with the planners, but it strikes me, Pork, though, that like we seem to have just decided, you know, at some point that uh, we'll, we'll put a Lewis tram system in place. So we're going to put that here. We want this street now for the cyclists. And all of a sudden you create this kind of a there's a real aggression sometimes I find on the roads out there as to who's more entitled to the road and this, the cyclist versus the car and so on and so forth. And is that just down to bad planning? No, I just think uh, planners are really coming around to the idea that um, what, what mode of transport should be prioritised. Um, the, most, the most efficient use of road space is for mass transit solutions, public transport solutions, to move people, most amount of people within a certain piece, piece of road. So obviously bus transport, transport and uh, rail transport is the best way of doing that. So, you know, we have to invest more in this, you know, and Bus Connects is... It's trying to, you know, enhance the accessibility of, of public transport as well. So not, not just radial routes that go into the city centre and back out again, but also how can we connect people who are outside of the city centre um, who don't want to access the city centre necessarily for work or educational opportunities, but also, you know, people are going orbitally. So going from without, without uh, actually going to city centre east to west. Um, it's uh, actually going round can often be the problem sometimes. Yeah. And that because at the moment a public transport system is not designed to do that. Yeah. Um, so as part of Bus Connects, we're, there's going to be more optical routes um, and opportunities for people to do these kind of 
uh, journeys. Yeah. Porik, okay, do you know you wanted to come in on some of those points there? Uh, I did, and just something you mentioned there, Porik, uh, and something that aviation uses very effectively, and that's hope and spoke. And you What's could, that like? Uh, hope and spoke is basically, uh, give you an example, back in the day we used to fly from Donegal, Galway, Kerry into Dublin, and passengers then would go on from Dublin onto uh, New York, Paris, Barcelona, London, and so on and so forth. So you actually bring people into a centre and you spread them out. And then after that, so you've got various uh, tentacles going out into various large cities. So rather than going from a place like Galway straight away to, for example, to Brussels, for mm. example, you're going through a place like, like Dublin and you move it on from there and you create the facility around Dublin Airport to cater for that type of modelling structure. Because we do, like, I just, I thought about this when, when, when Geraldine, you were speaking there and, and you're right, a lot of, if I get a taxi here in Dublin, the taxi driver more than likely is living in County Meath or Kildare or in some cases West Meath because they have to do that. And they're driving into Dublin to do their business, to bring people around and things and, and go back home again that night. Mm. So the hub and spoke model is something that might be might be considered. Uh, you asked there about, you just mentioned to Porik about strategy. I believe that this transport strategy we've had in Ireland for years has been a patchwork strategy. So it has been just try and look at with a puncture in the tyre of the car or, mm. or, or whatever. Let's Let's fix that puncture. And we'll keep going for as long as we can. I believe now they're beginning to look at a more integrated, but at the very early stages, a more integrated strategy. And something I think might be considered in relation to congestion, and we might get to regional Ireland in a yeah, while, and Gaul yeah. is crazy yeah, was, uh, from uh, that point of view. I was view. actually just going to, my next question I was going to ask you was the fact that, I mean, your home being in County Galway, this isn't exclusively a Dublin problem. That's oh the thing. Oh my like good God. I can get, I can get from, let's say, Spittle, Forabor, Barna, it takes me longer to to get to Ballybrit often than it does from there to get up to get up to, for example, Leakslip or Lucan or someplace like that. You know, getting through Galway is crazy. Well, I remember I went to college in Galway and I left it in two thousand and eight. And college or traffic then at the time, even as somebody who used to walk and drive to college, was absolutely bananas back in two thousand and eight. And all I'm told now is that it has got progressively worse. It's ten times worse. It's absolutely crazy. There are look at. There are companies saying to the IDA, look at, we'd love to come to Galway, but your big problem is your transport. You've got good people there, you've got skill sets, you've got the the universities and so on and so forth, but we cannot hack it with the transport. It takes too long, so it does for people to commute. It's a huge issue. They're tearing out their hair, mm. the, the, the local companies and international foreign direct investment companies that are there. I, I actually asked the Department of Transport to consider something else. Uh, I think this is... Like, let's say in revenue, take something from, from, from the revenue commissioners. They put together an expert group to focus on a particular area of revenue that they want to, let's call it, clean up or mm. look at. I actually believe that the Department of Transport should look at putting an expert group together to support key areas of, of, of short-term issues in relation to transport congestion and say this and move around the country and say, is there something short-term we can do here and give those people resources I believe there's a three-tiered answer to this. One is very, very short-term. It's unfortunately back a bit to the patchwork strategy, but we have to do something short-term. I really liked, Geraldine, your idea in relation to the, I'm going back to it again, to the, the hard sh- shoulder type of thing and using that Would something like that work in Galway, though? I think something like that would work yeah, in Galway. Okay. That's that's a kind of a short-term intermediate strategy, but then we got to go move towards a medium-term and a long-term strategy. To me, the long-term strategy, a lot of it's got to do around public transport and actually changing the mindset and behaviour of people. 
that it makes it say, yeah, it's in my best interest to actually go on the bus and go on the train or whatever. Yeah. Can I ask you, poor, Car- uh, poor Carl, just from an engineering perspective in Galway, like it, it, like Galway isn't alone. I mean, people are going to text in about Cork, about Limerick, about, you know, Sligo, Letterkenny, various other different places across the country. But Galway is one that we hear a lot about. Like, what can be done there? Yeah, transport is not just a Dublin problem. And uh, if you look at all the regional cities, um, Bus Connect is going to be rolled out in those cities too. So in the National Development Plan, uh, Bus Connect is going to be in Galway and Cork. Um, and so if you look at Cork as well, um, there's going to be uh, plans for a metro, a Lewis-type solution. Sorry, Lewis there. So, um, you know, Bus Connect needs to happen in, in Galway and Cork too. Um, yeah. And there is plans to do, to do that. Um, and they're currently uh, in, in, a, mm. in, the, in, the, in the pipeline. Okay. What about that idea, Geraldine, of the um, the Atlantic corridors at the M20, the, the Cork, Cork-Limerick? Cork What about the, the focus on was the, the, the southern part of the country as well. That more roads will solve the problem. <laughs> <laughs> Further development. <laughs> yeah, the problem with roads is once you build them, you fill them. You know, once there's increased capacity, you have people who've never driven before who suddenly go, do you know something now that that road links we the, get two to cars. this? So yeah, <laughs> let's get another car. So I mean, in, look, in ter- I think the thing about Ireland is we have limited enough resources. We have to spend them well. And I really do not understand why more money has not been spent on cycling infrastructure. In Copenhagen, they have spent 280 million in the last 10 years. Now that is... Tiny in comparison to you know budgets for transport, exactly. but yet they have sixty three percent of people in the city who do make their daily journey, whether it's to school or work, by bike. I mean that is huge. We also have, I mean, apart from you know just the infrastructure and the cost, we have a mental health issues, we have obesity issues with kids, we have you know emissions problems. Cycling is a really fast mm. and efficient way, but I think the problem is the Department of Transport and the government views it as some sort of a hobby. We allocate money on a hobby basis. You know, bike cycling is a is a modern and efficient mode of transport and we need to recognise that. Yeah, Can I come to you poor Carl because I know you um, carried out research on pedestrians isn't that right in Dublin with uh, with Frank Caulfield am I right to say on that? Yeah. Just just give us an indication about some of the findings on that. So what we found was that um, pedestrians were most uh, sensitive to any policy changes so more more sensitive um, more elastic um, to changes um, so for example if you were to widen um, pedestrian walkways uh, footpaths um, to increase uh, signal timings for people to walk across a road these type of things uh, reduce street clutter so like sandwich boards that we're already starting to do mm. these kind of things were actually more effective in getting people to walk uh, to, uh, to walk to work um, more than actually make any improvements to cycling in our, in our study right. so um, it's actually uh, it was interesting in that, in that way that you know cyclists um not, not everyone can cycle or wants no. to cycle, even if there is better uh, cycling infrastructure. But you know, everyone, uh, almost everyone, can walk, um, and walking is part of everyone's commute, door to door commute. So, um, to access public transport service, to get from public transport service to your work, you know, there is a, a walk link there. So um, it's a reality for everybody that there is a walk yeah. component. I, ha- I have to say, I, I, I don't cycle and there's an element of just laziness in that. And also the fact that, I mean, I don't, nothing appeals to me about sharing um, my routeway or, or my lane with a double-decker bus. There's nothing about that appeals to me whatsoever. And I think that's something that's an issue. But I mean, the people. Dutch and the Danes have realised many, many years ago that the only way to get people to cycle is to segregate them from cars. Mm-hmm. You know, And you have to do that. And that is absolutely essential. The one thing I would say, Porik, is though, I'm sure there's a, there's a key kind of um, mean distance that people walk. 
that they cycle a lot, lot more and there are studies done that e-bikes will actually increase that that distance again so we yeah. you know we need to look I mean I, I can perfectly understand why it's so easy to just walk out your door and you don't have any skills to, to acquire mm-hmm. to walk but I do think we need mm-hmm. to expand our you know our horizons Yeah just before we leave the cycling point is there any other point you wanted to make on the cycling? Uh, well cycling I think uh, you know in the, the climate action plan it Local authorities are 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 asked to um, devote ten percent of their budget to cycling infrastructure, and that that needs these kind of plans need to be revised mm-hmm. to incorporate more expenditure to cycling. So, I think we're going to see more and more um, investment in, in cycling. I hope mm-hmm. um, going forward from local authorities. Um, so let's 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 see it. Yeah. Let's do it. Just on the cycling park, Okaja, do you think are the are, are government taking it seriously enough? Um, and again, that's across country. That's not just Dublin exclusively. Yeah, I think I think government are beginning to take it seriously, and the Department of Transport are as well. I think they're very, 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 I suppose, constrained in relation to the, um, uh, the physical space that's available for all users of the roads, and that's an issue. Um, and the capital investment cost in order to facilitate that. Um, I believe that the Minister Shane Ross is pretty serious about that as well from my understanding of it um, so yeah they are but they've, they've got significant constraints there's significant capital investment required Okay you're listening to News Talks Between the Lines programme we'll be back with more on this issue in just a moment Between the Lines on News Talk. You're welcome back to the final part of today's programme, focusing on commuter pressures and infrastructure provision right across the country as part of our Commuter Hell Week here on News Talk. Our panel still with us today, Geraldine Herbert, motoring journalist at the Sunday Independent, Pora Carroll, who's an assistant professor in the School of Civil Engineering at UCD, and also Pora Kukeja, senator and a member of the Transport Committee and founder of Air Iron Express and Aer Lingus Regional. Um, I just want to focus on a couple of key points before we wrap up today, because one of the things we've noticed in the country at the moment is the rollout of various different types of new infa- or new um, transport provisions and the one thing of which there's public consultation on at the moment is the e-scooter people have really different views on on the idea of the e-scooter but um, maybe can I just ask you first of all poor Carol do you think the e-scooter has a, a, a role to play in trying to reduce some of this? Absolutely I think uh, so e-scooters are part of this micro mobility idea so if you think about micro mobility being e-scooters e-bikes electric skateboards um, and all these type of solutions uh, they're going to enhance people's uh, options and uh, so not everyone wants to cycle to work because you know there's obviously it's it's tiring and not everyone wants to arrive and work uh, covered in sweat so if you're going to use an electric bike or electric scooter you know it's going to you know make it more convenient for people to use these type of solutions to get to work Pork Okeja, the e-scooter, like there's a lot of debate about it at the moment and the safety and the rules and the regulations and should the e-scooter be in the same right road as the cyclist and the car and the bus and you know and, and I get it and I, I think I think it does have a role to play but it's probably finding what that role is or how do we legislate around yeah, it. Yeah and the department are in a consultation process in relation to that now as, as both of you both of you said, I believe they've definitely have got a role to play. I think they've actually a key role to play. Uh, not everybody who cycles in can go and have a shower because those mm. facilities aren't available, for example. Yeah. Uh, so I believe that e-bikes, e-scooters and e-skaters are certainly very much definitely a part of the answer to all of this. Geraldine Herbert, you mentioned the, the e-scooter e-scooters. a little bit earlier on, but you know, it's a difficulty for people at the moment because they are illegal at mm. the moment. You can't be on them. We've had um, mm. cases brought before the courts quite recently too in relation to that mm. but like at the same time there's health benefits to them at least it's getting people outside getting people off out of the car 
Yeah, absolutely. I think, unfortunately, e-scooters have got a bad reputation because people don't distinguish between the kind of privately owned e-scooter and the rental companies. The rental companies have been banned from some um, cities in Europe, mainly because they've they've um, encouraged this sort of abandoning of scooters. And, you know, they've been really badly treated and they've been disposable within about four weeks, which doesn't sound very environmentally friendly. But I think if you look at private owners of scooters who look after them, who use them on a daily basis, there's definitely, um, you know, there's a place for them. They're part of a solution. I think we need to look at speeds. I think we need to look at various different things where they, they share the road as you say because you know they're, they're quite fast in comparison to bikes they're very slow in comparison to cars so there's a place of finding them but I think that's the whole point of this consultation process is to get all of those ideas on board and actually then come up with the best solution but I definitely think you know they, they are the way forward Yeah, You mentioned Cage this idea earlier and I think it's interesting in the context of what was both mentioned with regards to cycling as well of maybe if we take somebody from Dundalk or Drogheda who gets the training you know to their first junction and then they can either hire a bike or they can bring their bicycle with them and cycle then to their workplace. But as Geraldine mentioned, it's the car parking space at the train station and it's the space to bring your own bike, you know, on the train. Like a lot of these things seem like fairly simplistic things that we should be able to address. But also, Andrea, there is when you get on, even if you have a car parking space and even if you if you can kind of get on the train and so on, more than likely you could be standing for an hour, an hour and a half. Mm. And we heard from without having, a, without having a seat on yeah, the train. Yeah, we heard from Aaron there and actually earlier um, in in the last couple of weeks too, talking about the availability of when the next set of carriages exactly. are, are going to become exactly. available to them. But yeah. I mean, is there anything that can be done at, at the moment to try and just the, the parking or increased availability of services, um, the number of trains that might be running each day, or how can we try and get those? Um, I, I think the biggest issue in relation to that Irish Rail have, quite frankly, is infrastructure investment over the years. There's two parts of the infrastructure investment. There's actually the carriages, but actually more important as the tracks. And in many cases, you need to have twin tracks. For example, I, I, I just because I know this may be a little bit better in other counties mm. and other cities, and I'm sure it's true with other cities, take Galway, for example. If you had a loop around Orne Moor, for example, yeah. uh, which you don't have in relation to a track. You could have just a, a commuter service to between Ormore and Galway City, for example. And you've got a huge population out in that part to actually work in Galway City. So it's 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 a two twin track approach, if I may be <laughs> <laughs> so bold as to say it. It's actually the track, but also it's what what the, the carriage is on the track. Yeah, Th- that point too earlier, and I know obviously, Pork, you're a, a cyclist, um, albeit maybe not using the trains on a daily basis, but like even just that idea that if someone can can get on the train, they can commute in as far as, you know, Connolly or Houston, and then sometimes there just, there aren't enough of the, the e-bikes there available for people to, to hire then to get mm. to the workplace. Like, is that... No, yeah, we need to, we need to think about, you know, um, providing more uh, options for people at the stations. So if we had like... Um, so e-scooter rental, but dockless ones. So not just ones that be left uh, uh, anywhere, mm. um, almost like uh, just thrown anywhere. So like, you know, having more options available um, when you get on the, uh, or off the public transport services is key. And is that something, Geraldine, you think that can be kind of... Yeah, I mean... Like the, e- it seems like a simple simple enough sort of a solution. They are definitely but I think even my local train station is Salins. I mean there's no capacity there to increase the car spaces. You know the car park is there, super value is next door. Mm. There is no solution there so I just wonder how they but again it goes back to planning. Why didn't they see that you know the more spaces you provide the more people that will use it. But the other thing as well that strikes me is the park and ride. Again we need to encourage more Mm. people to use that but like there's no electric car chargers at any of those park and rides in Dublin which seems completely ridiculous and then we have the government you know muting the idea that we may possibly have a 
cars in um, in bus lanes. So, I mean, we need to be very clear yeah. about where we're going with all of this. But, like, we need to keep e-cars as much as any cars away from the city as well. I know, so. and it's interesting when you say that because in the context of everything we've been discussing today, obviously we have our, you know, uh, climate, climate targets that we want to try and meet and... I know certainly funding, is it maybe 20 million was announced in the budget for the rollout yeah, yeah. of new ESB um, yeah. for the, the fast charging points across the country. But like, you know, 20 million, it's, it's any of the e, um, e-car people will tell you it's three times that you'd want to be rolling out to try mm. and get more of the, the fast charge points across the country. And, and, and like... I suppose it's just is it is it just political will to do that? Yeah, I think this. I mean, like there's a few things about electric car chargers we need to look at. Number one, most people charge at home, but we need to free up those fast chargers for the people who don't charge at home, who don't have you know who live in apartments, who need to go on the long journeys or whatever. Um, I think actually you know bringing in a cost on the 18th of November you know charging people for fast chargers is actually the way forward because it will free people up it'll stop people you know charging to 100% when they only need to maybe go to 60 and stuff like that we definitely need to invest more but I mean simple things like putting electric car chargers at park and rides would be a start I mean it's not so much the numbers um, Andrea about the fast chargers it's where they're located it's auditing the current system and realising there's very big gaps in places around the country and filling those gaps so I think that's the kind of thing that needs to be done as well in terms of electric car rollout yeah just a final point maybe um, a last word to you all just what do you think we what's our the, the the one thing we could try and do as soon as possible to alleviate some of the pressures on people irrespective of where they are in the country but maybe to start with yourself Porco Cage is there anything you think in your in your role in the transport committee that could be done um, actually, I go back to this my third time saying your point, Geraldine. You know, that was a really, really good point in relation to hard shoulders. Yeah. It's something that can be done very, very quickly, very cost effectively. And uh, it actually gets us over the hump, as it were, takes us through the stress point. Uh, and it's a, it's a short term thing. And I know you said that, but I think that'd be a really good starting point. Yeah. And I think we should follow up on that. OK, poor, uh, poor Carol as well. Maybe what's your suggestion to try and get us over the hump, as poor Cocage described it? Well, I, I think if we legalise e-scooters and make them safe safe to use, um, would enhance accessibility to public transport services for those who find it difficult to access um, public transport currently, um, and would give people options to use that use that uh, mode of transport to to work uh, as a as yeah. a full uh, mode of transport. Yeah, we'll give uh, the last word to yourself, Geraldine, today, but. As I've been saying, flexible working hours and car sharing. You know, I really still think really? that's a viable option and it, it needs to be like seriously considered. And even if we look at lanes with high occupancy, car users can use rather than anybody else. I mean, there's a way of encouraging it and it's, it costs nothing to do. Yeah. OK, well, look, lots to consider there today. Um, my thanks to you all for your time and your suggestions and for joining us in studio. To Borak Okeja, to Borak Carroll and to Geraldine Herbert. If you've missed any of the programme, you can download the podcast on our website at newstalk.com or go to the Go Light app or on iTunes. My thanks as always to the production team today, Stephen Jordan and Simon Keane. I'll be back again with Breakfast Briefing on Monday morning from 6 and with Between the Lines this time next week. But for me, Andrea Gilligan, have a good day.